Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. Jim Henson here. Um, I'm joined by my colleague Josh Blank again. How are you, Josh? Doing very well, thank you. You stay dry getting into work? Not as dry as I would have liked. In addition to a not entirely dry Josh Blank, we're very happy to be joined by Jonathan Tylove, who's the chief political writer for the Austin American Statesman. And as part of that, the author of the first reading blog, multimedia extravaganza that comes out most mornings at the Austin American Statesman. Jonathan, thanks for being here. How are you? Uh, great. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And you stayed reasonably dry getting here? I did. I feel a little bad that we cajoled Jonathan to get here. We tried to get him to come when I was out of town, and he couldn't make it, declined to some degree. I guess he got, he, he he, he got caught up he in work. He had yeah, to work. things happen. And then the time that we had him come, it's like about the only time it rains in August. But right. yeah, we'll take that fine. as a good portent. Mm-hmm. It's it's but you know it'll be no surprise that we'll of course return to the special the special session that's now past the halfway point. We've been talking about that week in week out in in this podcast for the last month. But since we're fortunate enough to have Jonathan with us, uh, I want to start today with a piece that you wrote for the Statesman in yesterday's Sunday paper. The, at least that's how I saw it, uh, based on an interview that you did with Governor Abbott Friday. So you sat down with the governor, and did you learn anything? Yeah. He thinks uh, this is going to be a tremendous success. He thinks it's going to vault the state of Texas uh, further in a conservative direction and as a model for conservative governance. He thinks in in 10 days, Texas will be a far better place than it is even now. And he already thought it was a pretty terrific place. So I, you know, there's a, if you're watching what's happening, it seems still kind of confused and uncertain where it's headed, but he seems extraordinarily upbeat about the destination. One of the things that Josh and I have talked a lot about in, in here, and we've talked about it, everyone's kind of talking about it, is this notion of, you know, how much the governor, how much of the governor's call, how many of those 20 items he has to achieve for this to be success, whatever that means. For some people, success would be merely him not calling another special session. Um, and, and it struck me that in the conversation, there were a couple of he took a couple of different tacks on that when he talked yeah. to you, at least in the way that you wrote it up. Was I right in picking that up? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't entirely parse because he's not willing to surrender anything, give on anything. He's saying he wants all 20, um, that that's his threshold for success, and there's no reason why that can't be done, and he thinks it will be done. At the same time, he he falls back on at least he wants to see all 20 um, get get an up or down vote, which obviously is not the same thing. And I think, you know, he's ultimately realistic and um, I think he will he will find ways to um, accentuate what they did get done, even if they fall, even if they get a dozen things or 
10 things or 14 things. I mean, my read of that is that we still don't know what that minimum threshold is. I mean, this idea that he wants everything to get a vote is an interesting It's a shift play, a little bit. Right? I mean, you know, not not an unusual shift, but a shift in his, his position. I mean, sort of taking kind of the Patrick route of, well, if it gets a vote, I'll probably... I'll probably get it passed. But even if it doesn't get a vote, he still gets to say, we'll see the dysfunction, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the difference is, I think, um, well, it's it's obviously the ball is in the House's court to a large degree, though. Then they have to work out differences between the House and the Senate. And I think that's where the governor plans on taking a very active role to try to make sure that they don't end up just, things don't fall apart uh, in the last few days. But- you know, I think Patrick has asserted, and I think the governor also, that these are all things that would pass if they got a vote on the House floor, and that's not at all clear. I mean, there are, there are there are quite a few things on there that really don't have support among the the majority of House members, and so they may not get a vote on the House floor, but they would fail if they did. Certainly, vouchers we've seen that that's not. Vouchers. I don't. I think the um, the. I think even the union checkoff is not something that, because police and firefighter unions are against it and they hold a lot of sway with, um, Republican members. Well, also in those smaller units, right? I mean, all of a sudden the unions can have a little bit more of an outsized power in, you know, a House member's district versus in a state senate district or statewide, right? Right, and I think even something that that seemed like it should have been kind of a, a gimme the the um preempting local cell phone ordinances i mean i talked to craig goldman who's the sponsor on that and he said in the house there are just too many members whose local officials and local police officials said no and that was persuasive for i mean the house is is very obviously locally rooted and um they weren't prepared to support it. If you remember that debate too, I mean, that was like, that was a specific point right. of contention during that house debate was to make sure that if there were local entities that had stricter ordinances, that they would stay in place. And that was not necessarily Democrats pushing that discussion. as I recall, you know, I mean, I think part of the politics of this from the beginning to me have been Abbott is in a pretty good position to get to demand some of the basics or expect some of the basic things. Again, we don't know exactly where that, what the level of basic is. Mm -hmm. Obviously the sunset bill, something on property taxes. And beyond that, it, it seems to me he has a lot of latitude to take what he can get as long as he gets a, a, a certain threshold that's well less than all 20 things. And then blame the problems on the legislature, which serves his purpose because, you know, he can blame it to some degree on, you know, the, the conservatives will blame it on Strauss, but he can also, in a more uh, uh, subtle way, also blame some of that on the lieutenant governor, which I don't think he has any problem doing. I mean, does that make sense to you? Yeah, and I think uh, he finds himself right now uh, with $41 million dollars in his campaign fund and no serious opposition. So he's got to do something uh, to, to maintain the momentum of a campaign. I think that the special session, which began the Tuesday after the Friday he announced for re-election, and um, the 20 for 20, 
And then <clears throat> assessing blame if necessary for what did or didn't happen, including maybe campaigning in Republican primaries, gives his camp gives his campaign and that $41 million is something to do uh, in the absence of a real contest. Give, give us a sense. I, I want to talk about a couple more things in the interview, but just for the sake of it, what's your, you know, you've not, you went over there, you, you, I think you kind of were there for a little bit right. before the interview. Give us a sense of what's going on in Camp Abbott. Well, I think that they were, um, I think they were very pleased with um, how Patrick delivered uh, quickly on 18 of the 20. Um, I think that they, you know, part of the point of the session was to kind of preempt any sense that, uh, you know, that uh, Patrick was sort of the driving force of the conservative agenda. So that was accomplished. And he was very, you know, he just sidled up to the governor, put his arm around him and said, it's, it's us against Strauss. I think the governor early on did say that, that, you know, put some pressure on Strauss saying his priorities are different than ours, which is a softer version of Patrick's, the man is our enemy. <laughs> maybe the, a Democrat. Maybe a Democrat. Maybe a Democrat, certainly a moderate, maybe a liberal. Um, and I think there has been, there was frustration in the governor's office with the pace of things in the House. And I think Strauss and people in the House say that's just the pace of the House. That's the way we do things. And also known as too bad. Well, yeah, but I mean, I think it's it's it's. I there's a degree of institutional loyalty in the house that goes beyond simply ideology, and it's just kind of this really is the way we do things. And I think that um, you know there was the feuding between Patrick and Strauss got worse uh, in the middle of the week with um, Patrick essentially saying Strauss refuses to meet with me, and Strauss saying you don't know what you're talking about. And the next day, the governor had Strauss in, and I think he left that meeting feeling, it was just a, just the two of them, feeling better about the way things are headed. And even though there are things the House does that are off topic and he thinks not germane and not productive, I think he left with the feeling that this is going to turn out okay. What do you attribute that to? Um, I attribute that to the fact that I think, I think Strauss will let, with the exception of the so-called bathroom bill, I think Strauss will let the House vote on anything that they are likely to pass. So there's not going to be this this sense that, you know, there was some nefarious uh, strategy at work that undermined the agenda. I think the things, and again, with the exception of the bathroom bill, which I think is still kind of the rub, I think that there's, there's no sense that... Um, Strauss is up to something that's going to undermine the governor's ability to get things that were clearly consensus issues for Republicans in the House. I mean, it strikes me there's a sense of, you know, shift, you know, that we're still seeing a lot of this shifting back and forth, you know, depending on what day of the week you're talking about, who's, who's on whose side, because certainly the speaker has something, you know, the speaker can help the governor with keeping the lieutenant governor in his appropriate place. It seems, you know, it strikes me. And there's also an underlying conflict here between the legislature and the governor that is also playing out here. I mean, I think amidst all of this public fighting last week, there were Senate bills referred in the House and there were House bills referred to committee in the Senate in a sense that 
the Senate and the House would work these things out between them at a lower, you know, even as, you know, the big personalities, if you want to call them that at the top, are fighting with each other. Yeah, and I think it's it's in all of their benefits, in all of their interests to have this turn out okay. I don't think any of them, well, I don't know, Patrick might want another session, but certainly Strauss didn't want this session. I think Abbott is happy with this session. I don't think he wants another one. And I think that um, they could all come out of this claiming victory, which is a pretty ideal circumstance for them. Okay, given that, just to play devil's advocate, I'll ask you both this. Any chance that the lieutenant governor will at least make some noise this week about holding the sunset bills hostage again? That's what I was about. To, I was about to ask. I was kind of wondering here. You know, the, the clock is ticking. I think there's ten days left as of today. I like what both of your eyebrows did. Your eyebrows just like furrowed, and Jonathan's raised. <laughs> yeah, that's good. You're painting a picture for everyone. I'm doing my best. I mean, I you know, I was kind of thinking about that. You know, to the extent that you know, thinking you know, so Abbott and and uh, Strauss meet, and Abbott comes out of that feeling you know a lot better about the process and what's going on, and to some degree, you know, the the one of the things that we've sort of been talking about a lot is with the dynamics from the regular session have not really changed as we've moved into the special session. If anything, maybe they've intensified a little bit, you know, in terms of the, the between chamber dynamic. And I was just thinking about that. I mean, kind of your question, which was, you know, to some degree, did the House's best defense, you know, at least against the, you know, some of the stuff that the Senate passes that they were less interested in during the regular session is the clock. And the, the clock is still ticking, you know, during the special session. You wonder, and I kind of wonder... I'm just going to sort of throw it to you after okay. this, but, you know, to what degree does the House pass, you know, its version of some of these measures? Because, I mean, they're not, I mean, they're certainly not just passing each other's bills. I mean, that's clearly. No, that, no they're, they're not. Right. And so the House passes its version of some of these bills. Does Patrick take the victory and say, you know, assuming the senators are willing to go along with it, which every indication is they're willing to go along with whatever he's, he wants at this point, do they take the victories and walk away? Or do they say, no, this isn't conservative enough or this doesn't really do enough for us and then basically either limit, you know, what would be Abbott's claims of victory in terms of how many items they got, right? Or, you know, on something as important as the Sunsetville, try to force, you know, more, you know, another special session. Well, I mean, I think the point would be, you know, do you just sit a replay of what they did before? I mean, because they still haven't passed the Sunset right. Bill. Well, I could see that going down to the wire, but I really can't imagine uh, Patrick attempting to use that again. Because that, you know, for all the fa for all the fact that the the governor essentially gave Patrick a session that more than you know that surpassed his his what he was even wanting or asking for, right. he did slap him down about the right. the fact that they had to have the session, and he put the 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 onus on the Senate and had this sort of you know requirement that they pass their sunset measure before he would let them deal with anything else. So I, I just think that would be um, bad behavior in a way that wouldn't you know wouldn't pass. Here's muster. my prediction though: he's still gonna he's still gonna you will still see a hint of that. He'll still gesture in that direction. I could be wrong, but you know if he in in, in an effort to move a couple of the things in his direction. He'll at least faint f e i n t in that in that direction would be my prediction. Right, and I, I yeah, and I I'm not saying that it's going to happen anytime before the last hours, but I I just don't 
I think what would be what the governor would consider bad would be the sense that they couldn't manage to get this done. Right. Because that's the thing he didn't like about the having to have a special session at all. And unless he's calling the shots, unless he's saying we need to come back because you're not cooperating, I think if he looks like he's um, having to come back because of, you know, external forces, that right. that's going to not look good. Right, because in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, we, Josh and I have been, you know, I think I talked to you about this, Josh and I have been working on this piece on this that we're still kind of, you know, turning around. But I mean, I think that is a, that's an interesting way of framing one of the questions we've been asking, which is, it's not as if the session, the regular session was not a very, you know, had a lot of very conservative product. It's not as if there's a lot of broad discontent out there among conservative voters. But once you had the sunset bill not pass, the governor, a lot of this has been about the governor asserting leadership and making sure that he remains in the position of preeminence that he he and his team believe the governor should be in, particularly vis-a-vis -vis Patrick, right? I mean, and so I think it would be a real shot across the bow if Patrick sabotaged the whole thing. So I don't expect him to do that. But the potential is, I mean, they haven't passed the bill. It becomes a lot less, you know, it becomes unequivocal whose fault it is, though, at yeah, that point. They, yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, it's definitely, it would definitely be a very strong gesture on Patrick's part and one that he he may well not want to make. Yeah, um, because, because I do think that, that Patrick's whole play here has been that he and the governor are tick tight. Right. You know? What did you call that? It's a Dan Ratherism, tick tight. Tick tight? Tight as a tick. Oh, okay. It's tight. Like... Like grafted yeah, on, right? Wow. Yeah, I'm pondering that metaphor for a moment, <laughs> or that the the, the roots. Dan of that. rather used that the night of the uh, Gore uh, Bush election. It's it's tick tight, tick tight. Yeah, I think it's well. I I like I like the image of tick tight in this, and I'm not going to go any further. But okay. <laughs> um, I I want to hit one more element of the interview that that was kind of you know interesting, and you, I think being. A serious person and a policy guy, you, you put it towards the end of your story. Yeah, I, I put the the stuff the, the public needs to know first. Right, and then you put you know the governor kind of kind of trash talking Rick Perry. Trash talking, -talking is a little bit of a strong term, but well, it was it, it, it was trolling. <laughs> I think even that's a little strong. You didn't the 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 circumstance were was that you know some of the complaints you hear from people. Um, particularly in the House, is, oh, you know, Rick Perry used to come on the floor and massage your back and make small talk <laughs> and just... And Rick Perry served really in the House. You're really testing us here, but go ahead. And Rick Perry, Rick Perry was lieutenant governor, and Abbott was on the Supreme Court and attorney general and had no previous real in-depth understanding. In summary, doesn't understand how our stuff works. Right. And so yeah. I said, was there a learning curve to the governor? And essentially his answer was, because compared to Perry, was that his results have been far superior to Rick Perry's, that he has pushed, that he has done things that Perry could only pine for in terms of a conservative policy and tax I gotta say, policy. I really liked the pining part. I was really yeah, glad Yeah, and he, he used it twice. That. He said, and because I said, so I, I guess Sanctuary Cities, which was during the regular session, would be 
another example. And he said, yeah, not only did he pine for it, but he called a special session to get it done and couldn't get it done. And he pushed, he said, he pushed and he pushed and he pushed. And I said, well, what was the difference then? Was it the time? He says, maybe it was the pusher. Right. So that's... So pretty, pretty, pretty provocative little, little session, I thought. Yeah, but you know, I think if if Rick Perry were still on Dancing with the Stars, he might take offense. But he's now Secretary of Energy, and and, maybe, and, and by all accounts, bucking to to move to again. move up. Yeah, so I mean, you know, he's doing fine. Right. So what does he care? He's right. moved on to <laughs> he he's got a he's got a you know I would say parenthetically and you know not to I don't want to use all the time on this. It's funny that you asked him about the learning curve and you got that kind of answer. I did an interview with Ann Richards in 2002, 2003 and asked her very like, I was like, was there a learning curve as governor? And I got a, a similarly kind of prickly answer. <laughs> it's almost, you know, I, I think governors don't like be, it, don't like having it suggested that they have anything to learn. She was like, well, I wouldn't say there was a learning curve in the way that you seem to mean it, she said. You know, and she went on to say, you know, what I really realize, and it's and it's interesting, similar to this. She said, what I realized is that I di I didn't realize quite how much I had to like pay attention to these legislators. Like they expected me to call Joe Blow on the. She said Joe Blow on the phone and ask him how they were doing and stuff. And I just didn't do that. I, it's not who I was. Well, but she also, I said, you paid a price for that. And she said, yeah, definitely. It's similar. The governor early on said, you know, they can get this done if if they uh, work hard enough. It's it's not like, you know, he suggested that maybe they were a the bit lazy. <laughs> I think he actually used the L word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So so the Perry thing was interesting. And Josh, I know you were thinking like, why, why do this? Well, yeah. I mean, for me, it's just one of those like, really? Why are you kicking, you know, Rick Perry? I mean, partially because he's probably not going to kick back because he's got... He's got better things going on right now, but it was, I mean, I'm just like, part of me, it's, I instantly kind of go to the, the arc of the whole thing. I mean, we've, you know, seeing Abbott come into office on the heels of Perry being the longest serving governor in Texas history, you know, basically having appointed everybody twice over to every, you know, position in state government and the idea that like, you know, the, and the expectations that that set for Abbott in some ways that were so unrealistic. Yeah. And that I think a lot of people are still, we've talked about this a lot, that a lot of people are still adjusting to. I mean, Patrick is much more of a standard lieutenant governor than was David Dewhurst. And, you know, Perry was a pretty atypical governor. And so, I mean, I think, you know, it, yeah. it's hard for me to look in the historical context of Abbott kind of. Right, but I think, I think for Abbott, he probably hears people pining for Perry all the time. And he's looking at it going like, the state's moved to the right and I've, you know, moved with it. And so I don't get credit for the fact that this is a a much more conservative place than it was when Rick Perry was governor. Yeah, well, and I'm sure that they don't like the narrative that is, you know, that is out there that he is inevitably going to be a little less influential than Perry. And there is this sense that, you know, it's kind of alluding to before that, you know, one of the things the Abbott people are really, I think, conscious of is making sure that Dan Patrick or whoever else or the memory of Rick Perry don't encroach on, you know, the natural space occupied by the governor. And I, I'm not surprised that I'm a little, you know, look, I was a little surprised that the, the directness of this, but I'm not surprised that, that that's on their minds. But you know, you know what you could say, I mean, one easy way or an easier answer to that question might also be to say, well, if you're, if you're Abbott, would you rather say, I mean, you're, I mean, I think your, your summary of that's good, which is the state's move further to the right. And so if you're looking at that and trying to, you know, 
credit claim. In some ways, if you're Abbott, it's a lot easier to say, well, compare me to Rick Perry on these, you know, a couple of these signature issues than to say, who should get the credit for the state moving so far to the right over the last couple of years? Because asking, answering that question, it's a much more of a, you know, I think a much stronger case can be made for Dan Patrick over Greg Abbott. And that's not really, I mean, that's what he's trying to avoid, right? Well, I'll, I'll see your irony and raise it one, which is, you know, one of the things that is interesting about this, I think, is that in terms of the state moving to the right, you know, the person who deserves a lot of credit for stepping forward and saying, you know what, all of this stuff about the golden age of Texas politics and cooperation between parties and reaching across the aisles um, is over given the reality of a Republican Texas and the reality of a conservative Republican primary electorate that is really driving outcomes is Rick Perry. I mean, at the time, you know, as Rick Perry really grew into the office and certainly after he won in 2010, that was really kind of what everybody realized is that, you know, Perry was more than willing to do things that, you know, that were much more focused on partisan politics than a lot of his predecessors. And it, it, it paid off. Speaking of partisanship, let's move on while we have we have about six minutes left to Governor Dan Patrick and his comments on Friday blaming city governments for quote unquote all the problems in the America in, in America. So Dan Patrick was on TV and you know made a bunch of comments about the cities and we've talked about this contrasting cities with state government. He said, you know, uh, our cities are still controlled by Democrats and where do we have all our problems in America? Not at the state level run by Republicans, but in our cities that are mostly controlled by Democrat mayors and Democrat city council men and women. That's where you see liberal policies. That's where you see high taxes. And of course, that's where you see street crime. So a, pr a pretty interesting and direct kind of articulation of this sort of development that we've been seeing in the last year or so of kind of mobilizing people's allegiance to the state and setting up this conflict between the state and the cities. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, again, it's very much of a piece with Abbott's whole emphasis on protecting individual rights by curbing local governments and that the state is should be the repository of power. The thing about Dan Patrick is he takes it and he sort of adds a shiv to it. I mean, he just he just <laughs> he just comes on stronger and and makes it more us against them. Even though the, the governor's been you know perfectly, pretty direct, pretty direct about how it smells better when you leave Austin because you get the smell <laughs> of freedom. But but that's kind of you know that's kind of beautiful the smell of freedom. Whereas <laughs> whereas Dan Patrick, you get this. Not if you live in Travis County, <laughs> it's not beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Dan Patrick, it's it's really it's always gotta be a little bit more um Nixonial. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, with edgier, more pointed. And I and I thought the, you know, and I and I don't think I've heard to my recollection the governor be, be quite you know, I mean, Governor Abbott has made this about a, a kind of constitutional argument about, you know, state government. Philosophical, is a, really. You know, right? and, there's and, a certain and, philosophical underpinning to it. And he, covered, to it. Ha yeah. he, he carried Harris and Bear County. So right. he's, 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 you know, and he's also, yeah, no, I mean, he doesn't want to be so divisive that he sacrifices some votes in the process. Well, yeah, you know, it takes Dan Patrick, you know, the space of 30 seconds, I think, 
to mention that, you know, you know, to paint this portrait of dysfunctional, you know, crime-ridden cities, which is, uh, you know, a, d- a different kind of tact rhetorically. Yeah, I mean, I was, I mean, you know, there's not a lot that he can say that would surprise me. You know, I mean, just because I just think he's, you know, he's I mean, partially he's a talented politician. He's not afraid to wade into sort of, you know, controversial areas. But, you know, the the antagonism with which he sort of moved this argument forward is really, is, you know, it's really pretty notable. And I think, you know, this is sort of like a further escalation. We talked about this in a previous podcast about, you know, sort of a, a notable advance in this sort of city versus the state thing was the fact that all the major cities, say Fort Worth, you know, got uh, basically banded together and are suing the state over the sanctuary cities law, you know, and that's kind of notable. I mean, usually the cities are kind of doing their own thing. I mean, Dallas is kind of different than Austin, obviously, and Houston's certainly very different. El Paso. I mean, these are different places. And the idea that they were kind of banded together at this point and saying, you know, this is enough was sort of, you know, the first phase of saying, well, you know, it seems like the cities are really starting to kind of get a little bit sick of this. But then this to me was really interesting just in that, you know, it was such an antagonistic tone. I mean, the philosophical arguments, and we've sort of had this discussion, which is, you know, Abbott's not necessarily wrong, right? I mean, you know, the cities are, the cities and the county governments are creations of the state government. And that's, you know, you can't really deny that that's true. But to say that basically the cities where a huge share of Texans choose to live and elect their own representatives in government are somehow the cause of all the problems is like and you know which is austin mayor steve adler who's been really trying to take point on this and you know not surprisingly given that austin is very often the the rhetorical you know uh uh uh, kind of point of a lot of these objections particularly on ideological grounds also pointed out the cities are also economically very important in a week when the governor's been talking about the texas miracle when um you know more large corporate business actors are getting involved and being a little more aggressive for reasons we talked about last week that having to do with the timing of the special session in this fight over us over some kind of bathroom legislation and taking a more you know cosmopolitan you know uh, uh, position on this it really does kind of underline you know how much there's a political you know edge to this that I think is not is not going to be easy to resolve in the longer run. I mean we've looked at polling and you know our polling is showing that there is a baseline kind of agreement in the general orientation here among particularly among conservatives and Republicans in our views of state versus local government. But you earlier referred to uh, Patrick as Nixonian, and I think. In this case, you know, he he does come from Spiro Agnew country. I mean, he's from Maryland, and this is reminiscent of of Agnew's rhetorical flourishes, shall flourishes, we say? Yeah, yeah, and and you know, the overall, you know, the overall mobile, you know, I you know, I'm really struck by the use, I, obviously, of the use of crime and and safety and that building of anxiety and all the the overtones that that go with that. I think, I think at this point, I want to. Well, thank you, Josh. Thanks for coming, Josh. And My thanks pleasure. for showing up week in and week out over the semester. Uh, thanks for making the uh, the special effort, Jonathan. We hope if we keep yeah. doing this, you'll come back. Thanks very much. I will. Excellent. And with that, we'll say to the students out there, good luck wrapping up the end of the, of the summer session. Uh, in terms of some of the things we talked about, Jonathan Tylove's piece 
was in the Sunday Statesman. It will you can find it on the on the internet at the Statesman site. It's called Gover- Governor Abbott predicts special session will create a far better Texas. Uh, there's an article in the Texas Tribune, among other places, on Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick's comments on city governments. That story ran in the Tribune Friday and was you know hit hit the hit the internet on Friday. So with that. Thanks for listening, and again, good luck finishing up the semester. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project and the Project 2021 Development Studio at the University of Texas at Austin. 